0: This is uh, Walk Seer Well. Two things I know for sure. First one is that bad things happen. Right? If you're older than two and a half years old, you know that bad things happen. I mean, you could count the ways in which bad things have happened to you, right? Wouldn't be too hard. You could literally just rhyme them off. It's the opposite of mountain peak moments in your life. It's those valley, those trough moments when bad things overtake your life. I know for sure that bad things happen. That's one thing I know for sure. The other thing I know for sure is that when bad things do happen, our first instinct is to leap into action and do whatever we can to save ourselves. Have you ever had that response occur in you when something bad happens? Your immediate reaction is to leap into action and do something about it. This goes to a deeply inbred sense we have, that we are somehow enough, that we are somehow the answer, that if we just work a little harder or dig a little deeper, we will find the answer we're looking for within. Popular culture will spend a lot of time, go to great lengths and sell you many products, exhorting you to look within to find the answer you need. Of course, we know as followers of Jesus that the answer does not lie within us. But that instinct of self-preservation lies deep within your heart. And so when bad things happen, know that you're going to have the immediate reaction to do something about it. We want to take matters into our own hands. Like Avram and Sarai do in Genesis chapter. 16. Take a look. Now Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Chagar. Sarai said to Avram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Avram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Avram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian... Her servant gave her to Avram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Chagar, and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Avram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Avram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please." And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Chagar, fled from Sarai. And the angel of the Lord found Chagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shul. And he said, Chagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Chagar said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to Chagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er l'chai roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Chagar bore Avram a son, and Avram called the name of his son whom Chagar bore Ishmael. Avram was 86 years old when Chagar bore Ishmael to Avram. Your thesis this morning is this, wait for God to save you without worrying, because the master of walk, well is with you. Here's how we get there. Look at verse 1. Now Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no children. We know from Genesis chapter 12 that this is the key issue in Avram and Sarai's life. They have no kids. In ancient Near East culture, this would have been a much greater problem than it is in our culture. And even in our culture, if you meet a couple who has been trying to conceive a child with no success, you will know the pain associated with that. Perhaps you have experienced that yourself. And you know firsthand what it feels like when you just can't have kids and all you want is to have kids. And for the people I've talked to who have walked through that journey... I don't think it's a stretch to say that they feel cursed sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. And you can bet that Sarai, especially Sarai, and to a lesser degree her husband Avram, felt cursed. Cursed of God. To have no children in that culture effectively meant the cessation of your family's existence. If you were a woman and you were childless in that culture, you were one step away, your husband's death, from literally death itself for you. They had no kids. Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no children. They felt cursed. But the irony is, God had said in Genesis chapter 12 that they would be blessed. Remember that? God meets Avram and his first words to him are words of blessing. I'll make of you a great nation. You'll have so many descendants, they'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. In another instance, when he reaffirms the promise, he says they'll be as numerous as the sand of the sea. He blesses them, but yet they're cursed. There's a wonderful teachable for us here. The promise of blessing does not include the elimination of problems. God has clearly blessed them in chapter 12. And here we are 10 years later. Avram was 75 years of age when he entered the land of Canaan with his wife and his family. 75 years. It is 10 years later. How many of you know that a decade is a very long time? Right? Sometimes it feels fast, but it also feels like an eternity. You're like, 10 years. Imagine 10 years of inhabiting the land of promise. Anticipating the blessing of God. You left Haran, your hometown, to move to this place because God promised that when you moved to that land, He would, as an act of faithfulness, bless you with offspring so numerous that you wouldn't be able to count them. Ten years later, and still Sarai has borne Avram no children. All right, this ought to help you next time you find yourself frustrated with God. Right? Promise of blessing does not include the elimination of problems. Even huge, grievous problems like barrenness. So, if you're facing immense problems here today, or the next time that you do, remember, you're not the first one to ever experience this, and it's probably not going to be the last time you ever experience it. So, Don't allow your problems to have more power than they ought to have. Nothing has befallen you except that which is common to humanity. This is de rigueur. This is how it goes. This is the human condition. And just because you're suffering does not mean that God has forsaken you. And it does not mean that in some way he has forsaken his goodness. So calm down. It's the first teachable point. Calm down. Secondly, do everything you can to live in a way that eliminates as much baggage as possible. Why is that? Well, baggage weighs you down, and sin kills. Scripture is very clear. The wages of sin is death. Put in modern vernacular, sin kills. Baggage is heavy, and sin kills. Look at the second half of verse 1 through to verse 2. Here's the first half of verse 1. Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no children. Here's the second half of verse 1. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Chagar. And Sarai said to Avram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Avram listened to the voice of his wife. Sarai had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. We ought to immediately ask the question, now mind you, I've been preaching you through from Genesis 12, so you already know the answer. But if you came casually to Genesis 16, you'd be like, where'd she come from? They're not Egyptians. Right? They're from Haran. They've recently moved to Canaan. Where'd this Egyptian servant come from? I'll tell you where she came from. Undoubtedly, almost undoubtedly, she came from Pharaoh's harem. Um, how's that? Well, because Sarai lived in Pharaoh's harem as one of Pharaoh's wives after Avram sold her out to save his own skin back in the second half of Genesis chapter 12. I told you we get to it eventually. This is one of those eventuallys. Let me read to you what happened. Now there was a famine in the land, so Avram went down to Egypt to sojourn there to visit for a while to stay. For the famine was severe in Canaan. When he's about to enter Egypt, listen carefully, friends. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Avram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. You gotta see this woman. Right? You I'm king, you gotta see this woman. Imagine a woman so beautiful that her fame spreads throughout the land so quickly that the servants of the king say to the king, You gotta take this one. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Avram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Well, maybe she was just in the harem. Maybe there were no wifely duties being transacted until we get to verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Avram's wife. So Pharaoh called Avram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that they had. Oh, you should see the biblical commentators do backflips to try and come up with an explanation for how Sarai was part of the harem but didn't sleep with Pharaoh. Anyway, where did Hagar come from? She came from Egypt. If I had to bet, I bet she was a harem servant. Why? Because she was one of Sarai's servants. And where was Sarai in Egypt? She was in the harem of Pharaoh. And in Genesis chapter 16, we see that sin that Abram committed in chapter 12 coming home to roost. Sarai says, I got no kids. You know what? Fine. Why don't you sleep with one of the harem girls that you turned me into? Sleep with my servant. Maybe I'll get some kids from her. Why should you avoid sin? Okay, I'm going to give you two answers. First reason you should avoid sin is because of the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the best news of all time. It's so fantastic, I can't even say gospel without smiling. I just can't. The gospel says a few things to us. It says that God exists, that he's beautifully good, that he made everything that is including you, that he made everything that is to bring him glory. He made you in his image and likeness to be his friend forever. (laughs) It's awesome. This all started with our first parents, Adam and Eve. He set them in a garden with everything they needed to build a beautiful life. He told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Eat from any tree in the garden, but leave that one alone. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, leave that one alone. That one's there to give you a choice. Right? I I didn't give you a choice. I want you to choose to obey me. I want you to choose to love me. Leave that one alone. And you may have heard the story. Talking snake shows up. Powers of darkness show up. say to Eve, did God really say? (laughs) He sows the first seeds of doubt. Said, yeah, he told us not to eat from that tree. Says we'll die if we do. <laughs> you won't surely die. You know why God told you not to eat from that tree? Because he knows that it's good for giving wisdom. And when you eat from it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. God's playing you, Eve. You let him play you like that. It's like, no, I'm not gonna let him play me like that. She takes the fruit and she eats and she gives to her. Stupid husband standing there, meek and mild. And he hates too. Oh, oh no. God shows up, knows something's wrong. Why? Because they've quickly hid from him and they've made themselves some clothes out of fig leaves. He's like, why are you dressed? They said, well, because we were naked and ashamed and afraid of meeting you in the garden. He said, to that, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from a tree? Stupid Adam, the woman you gave to me made me do it. He looks to Eve, he said, what's this you've done? She said, the serpent made me do it. God snaps, oh, curses the serpent, curses the woman, curses the man, casts them out of the garden. Now you have a very big problem. You have these beings made in the image or likeness of God to be his friends forever. Now they're banished from his presence. And every child they bring into the world is born with that sin nature. In fact, that sin nature is so strong in them that our race becomes so evil that in the days of Noah, God just is sick of it. He wipes out the earth, wipes it out. I can't stand it anymore. You're like, what right does he have to commit an act of genocide? I mean, he made everything that is in the first place. I know it's not popular, but it makes perfect sense to me. Saves a remnant, though, Noah and his family. And some animals. And with them, after the flood recedes, he begins to repopulate the earth. But guess what? The seed of sin still lived in their hearts. And never once, throughout the long, sad, violent history of humanity, did any one of us get it right. So finally, in his wisdom and in his mercy... In the fullness of time, according to the scriptures, God the Father sent God the Son into space-time history to become a man. God the Son takes on flesh as Jesus Christ the God man, fully God and fully man. It's amazing. God in a body. And he lives among us. Ooh. And he's awesome he's tempted in every way in which you'll ever be tempted yet he doesn't sin and not just that but he perfectly fulfills the law of the father he only does what he sees the father doing he reaches out to the downtrodden and the oppressed, the poor, the sick, and the afflicted he shows them love and every time he heals somebody and every time he restores somebody to new life he says the kingdom of God has come and it's come in me Go and sin no more. Ooh. It causes quite a stir. Romans don't like it. The Jewish ruling elite don't like it either. They're like, we've seen our share of false messiahs, but this time, oh man, do you see the things this guy does? We might be in trouble this time. We've got to do something about this. this. This guy is claiming to be one with the Father. Not only is he a blasphemer, but he has the works I mean, that we can't explain. We better kill him quick. And so they do. They conspire together, but of course they're doing nothing that lies outside the sovereign will of God the Father. So, in the fullness of time, according to the scriptures, God the Son made flesh, is hung on a cross between two thieves. And as he hangs there, God the Father places on him. The sins of the world, your sin and mine, the iniquity of us all is placed on him. Your badness goes to Jesus, and in the great exchange, as C.S. Lewis puts it, his goodness comes to you. God the Father turns away from him. The sins of the world make him so disgusting that his Father can't bear to even look at him. Jesus Christ, God the Son, made flesh, dies. In your place for your sin. They lay him in a borrowed tomb. His disciples think all is lost. But on the third day, he rises again. Some women go to anoint his body. They find the stone rolled away and Jesus Christ risen. One of them bumps into them in the garden. They think he's the gardener. He's not the gardener, he's the risen son. Defeated in his body, the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell. Forever he has crushed the serpent's head. Then some days later he ascends right in front of their eyes. To the Father's right hand where he sits even now. Interceding for you. He's your cheering section. place we're told from whence he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end. A kingdom in which you have a place a kingdom in which you have an address, a house that he's building even now. Hey, my body doesn't feel sick right now. You know, I can see somebody shout. Why you avoid sin? In loving, worshipful response to that Jesus who paid that price to set you free from its clutches. That's the best I can do. I can't offer you a better theology of sinlessness than that. Because he first loves you, you love him back. But look, you might not be a theologian. You might be essentially pragmatic. The concept of abiding in the law of self-giving love of God and self-giving love of neighbor might be a little too esoteric for you. I'm here to tell you, though, that as you do it, as you lovingly respond to the love that God has shown you, selflessly loving Him, selflessly loving your neighbor, because by definition, selflessness does not allow you to sin, because you catch yourself before you sin against someone, because you're acting selflessly, so you can't bear to sin against them. As you selflessly love God, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As you selflessly love neighbor, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. As you do these, sin naturally atrophies and dies over time as you become more and more like Christ. But if you want some pragmatics, sin destroys everything it touches. Sin kills, including relationships. So look, even just from a pragmatic point of view, the less you sin, the better. You know this. When someone sins against you, what happens? That relationship, if it's a grievous sin, that relationship dies. If you sin against somebody, if it's grievous, that relationship dies. This does not mean that God does not forgive you. This does not mean that God does not love you. But that relationship will still die. Because the wages of sin did not stop being death. Sin still kills. It doesn't kill ultimately and forever. Why? Because Jesus Christ has ultimately defeated it in His sinless death and in His resurrection. One day when He returns, oh, you'll see Him triumph. You'll see Him triumph over His enemies one last time. And you'll walk into the new Jerusalem, a land without sorrow, without crying, without weeping, without death, oh, without darkness. Okay, You're going to get there, but for now, know that sin still kills. The less you sin, the better. Why? Because look what happens. Consider verses 3-6 through six of our text this morning. So after Avram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Avram's wife, took Chagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Avram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. When she saw that she'd conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai said to Avram, may, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. When she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Avram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her, do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And Chagar fled. Hooray, an extra wife. Here, take Chagar. Yay, except biblically speaking, I can't think of a single example where two wives was better than one. Why? Immediately jealousy and evil creeps in. Verse 4, And when she saw that she had conceived, Chagar looked with contempt on her mistress. What is contempt? Has anyone ever looked on you with contempt? That look of abject, unguarded hatred. Have you ever been truly despised? Equally important, have you ever looked on someone with contempt? Have you ever truly despised someone? To look on someone with contempt is to effectively wish non-existence upon them. That's why it's so grievous, right? That's what contempt is saying. You may not be vocalizing it, but when you look on someone with contempt and they see that abject hatred and scorn in your eyes, they know what you're thinking. You're thinking it would be better if you didn't exist. Contempt. Contempt. Giving it or receiving it is one of the darkest moments any human can ever experience. And once contempt has crept in, there's almost never a way back. Look at verses 5 through 6. It's all your fault, says says Sarai. I gave her to you as a wife. Now she despises me. This, This should be on your head. May God judge between you and me. May God judge between you and me is a polite way of saying, God, you. Okay, that's what she's saying to Avram here. I don't know if you've ever gotten to that point in your marital relationship. Not a good moment. You want to live in such a way that neither of you ever has to say to the other, may God judge between you and me. She's blaming him, I think rightly, and he's so sick of it, he doesn't give a rip. Verse 6, behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. From doesn't love Chagah. He's used her. Don't you think if he loved her, he would defend her? Husbands, if this happened to your wife, wouldn't you defend your wife? Not at me if you would defend your wife. You understand that as a reasonable instinct. So the only logical conclusion, he don't love Hagar. He'll use her as a warm body. This is the original Handmaid's Tale. Sure, I'll take that. Let's go. You're unhappy about it? Whatever. Do whatever you want. What a jerk. It looks an awful lot like the contempt that's circling between Hagar and Sarai is crept into Avram's heart also. Looks like both of these women in his house are driving him crazy. Do whatever you want. So Sarai begins systemically abusing, humiliating Chagar. These are the words in the Hebrew. And Avram sits by and lets it happen. You can bet he slept alone that night. And if I had to bet money, I bet you he was stewing over all the nights he slept alone, alone in Egypt while Sarai was hanging out God knows where doing God knows what. didn't have sleeping pills in those days. I bet you he didn't sleep a wink that night. Sin kills. Avoid it at all costs. Y'all heard me? Sin kills. Avoid it at all costs. Even the patriarch was a sinner and a fool. Even the, and I'm going to meet him someday. He's going to look at me, and if I've rightly divided the word truth, he's going to say, high five, man. Isn't Jesus great? I'm going to say, yeah, he is, baby. Yeah, he is. I mean, I see my own idiocy in the patriarch. Hopefully you see your own idiocy reflected in his wife. If even the patriarch was a sinner, don't think for a minute that you're beyond its pernicious reach. So what's the applicable point? Live your eyes wide open to try and avoid sin as much as possible. Knowing that God will step in to help you when you can no longer help yourself. Almost done. God will step in to help you when you can no longer help yourself. Like he did with Chagal. Look at verses 7 through 14. I'll read them for you. The angel of the Lord found her, Chagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Chagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold... You are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called 'er Be'er Lachairo'i. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Chagar bore Avram a son, and Avram called the name of his son whom Chagar had bore, Ishmael. Avram was 86 years old when Chagar bore Ishmael to Avram. This gets beautiful right here. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord finds her. I'm going to do this rapid fire because I'm almost out of time. Okay, note this in verse 7. The angel of the Lord finds her. God will find you. He's already involved, even though you can't see it. Hallelujah, right? He finds her. No preamble, no announcement. He's already involved, even though you can't see it. God will find you. Secondly, verse 7, he finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Only those who have gone on grade three camping trips in the Judean wilderness, like myself, and happen to poke a hole in their canteen, know what it's like to almost die of thirst in Israel. I mean, it is an unforgiving landscape of rock and thorn and hill and blasting sun. And this part of Israel, where they live near Hebron, is like a moonscape mixed with phoenix. It is, it'll kill you in half a day. And so she's walked away from the camp and God finds her at a spring of water in the wilderness. You know why he found her at a spring of water? Because she was going to die. And when you're going to die in the wilderness, you do anything and everything you can to find a spring of water or else you're going to die. Don't be surprised. Here's the applicable point for you. If God allows you to go right to the brink before he steps in. Don't you feel like, I mean, couldn't you just drop me a canteen of water from heaven? Don't you ever feel that way? I mean, you claim to have made everything that is. Why don't you make a garden hose? Put your end in the river of life and drop one end down to me, baby. Let's go. You ever felt that way? I feel that way all the time. I'm like, I don't understand. Why are you hanging me out to dry? Where are you at? Hello? Anybody? You know? Don't be surprised if God lets you go right to the brink before he steps in. And keep in mind that God is keeping in mind the entirety of your journey, past, present, and future, in how he deals with you. What does the angel of the Lord say to Hagar, Verse 8. Where have you come from and where are you going? Why is he asking? Like, he doesn't know? This angel of the Lord we're talking about here, he knows. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, it's not Gabriel, it's not Michael, it's the angel of the Lord. It's not God Himself, it's His messenger. Some theologians think this is like a pre incarnate visitation by Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that, it just says the angel of the Lord. He knows. He's not asking this question for His sake. Where have you come from and where are you going? It's to get her to admit the truth. Look, admit the truth about your journey, okay? Where have you come from? Where are you today? Where are you going? Stop glossing it over. Stop pretending it didn't happen. Accept it. That's your past. This is the present you find yourself in. I'm going to keep moving forward. Somebody say amen. You know, that's for you today. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Um, well, <clears throat> she's honest with him. She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. You can't fool God. You can't fool yourself. Make a habit of telling the truth. Be honest about your past and your hopes for the future and accept it when God gives you a mid-course correction. Verse 9, go home and submit to Sarai. This is not the answer she was hoping for. Right? I just left that woman. She's abusing me. You want me to go back? Understand. If God ever gives you instructions that do not seem to make sense, remember Chagar and remember that you're not the only one who sometimes feels that way. Also remember that moment that he's God and you're not. So do what he says. Notice that there's no promise of relief here. You should notice that. Go on back and submit. Doesn't say she's going to be nice to you now. Doesn't say she's going to stop abusing you. No promise of relief. Just an expectation of obedience. That's the Christian life. Word up. You want to be strong like men and women? Accept that and act on it. Obey the Lord, despite no apparent promise of relief. Ooh, I could shout, but I'm not going to. This is a pattern. He issues a command. There's a pregnant pause, and then there's a dose of grace. Contained in verses 10 through 12. I'll multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Does this sound familiar? Behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You'll call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. God's going to be kind to her. Not because of her. She's just a harem slave from Egypt. He's going to be kind to her because of his promise to Abram. That's grace. Merit or favor undeserved. Huh? Ah. It's the best day of my life. It's beautiful. Do you see it? Almost word for word, he echoes the promise he's already made to Avram. Her baby daddy. And because of his promise, God's promise to his friend Abram, he is going to show kindness to Hagar that Hagar does not deserve And notice that his kindness does not eliminate the consequences of sin. Because he goes on to say that her son, Ishmael, is going to grow up to be the father of nations who always fight with themselves and with everyone else. The legacy of Avraham and Sarai's sin with Chagar in taking matters into their own hands instead of continuing to wait for God to save them and fulfill his promise continues to bear rotten fruit in many of the interactions the descendants of Ishmael continue to have today with many of the descendants of Isaac, the eventual son of promise. I don't want to politicize this, but you know, read some Middle Eastern history if you're curious about this. The point is this. When we take matters into our own hands and leap into action to save ourselves, the result is never good. Worship team, you can join me on stage. When we leap into action, when we take matters into our own hands to try and save ourselves, the results are never good. Here's the good news again. God knows this, which is why he stays involved. Hear this. Let's finish with verses 13 through 16. So Chaggah called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Wait till I tell you what the Hebrew means there in just a second. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lachai Ro'i. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Chagar bore Avram a son, and Avram called the name of his son whom she bore, Ishmael. Avram was 86 when all this happened. She gives God a name. Get ready to get, have your world rocked. <sighs> gather myself for this one. You are the God who sees me. Ata el ro'i. Ata you, el, God, ro'i. Who sees me from the root. Ata el ro'i. You are the God who sees me. I would not be much of a preacher if I did not immediately take this opportunity to say the following. Ro'i, if you change the yud on the end to an aleph, it becomes ro'e, which means to see, but it also means shepherd. Mike can't handle the truth. <laughs> Did you hear that? Ro'e, shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overfloweth. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And... I shall dwell in the house of my God forever. Hallelujah, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Like the name of the well where Hagar met God. Don't miss it. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. You know what she calls the well? You should be able to see it right there in the text. They named it what? Next slide. Be'er lachai ro'i. Here's what that literally means in English. The well where I realized the God who sees me was following me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This is the well where I realized that the God who sees me was following me. And then she thinks to herself, "Eh, it's not very catchy. It's kind of wordy. Maybe we could just shorten it to walk seer well.